Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Primary Care Anywhere, a podcast run by the internal medicine residents at the University of Utah. I'm Addie Brown, a third-year internal medicine resident, and today we've got some great content for you. We will be demystifying periprocedural anticoagulation. Let's get to our case. A 60-year-old female with a history of atrial fibrillation, hypertension, diabetes, and a bileaflet mechanical aortic valve on warfarin presents to your clinic for preoperative evaluation one week prior to a knee replacement. She has been sent by her orthopedist for assistance with periprocedural anticoagulation management. Pause and challenge yourself to think about how you would manage this patient. Would you stop anticoagulation? When would you resume it? Would you recommend bridging? Today, you're going to hear from several of our residents about the most current guidelines around periprocedural anticoagulation management. Now over to Dr. Williamson, who's going to start us off with a review of pharmacology. Hi everyone, my name is Julie Williamson, and I'll be leading us through the pharmacology of anticoagulant agents, the bleeding risks of surgery, and the clotting risk if anticoagulants are held. All these factors need to be assessed so we can make a plan for each of our patients on blood thinners undergoing surgery. First, we'll discuss the types of anticoagulants used, their half-lives, and reversal agents. DOACs, or direct oral anticoagulants, are factor 10A inhibitors. These include apixaban and rivaroxaban. Their peak effect is around 2 hours, and their half-life is around 12 hours. Reversal agents include indexina alpha, which is rarely used, or prothrombin complex concentrate. Low molecular weight heparin has a half-life around several hours, and note that this is different from unfractionated heparin, which can be turned on or off instantaneously. Heparin products can be reversed with protamine. Warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist. Since vitamin K is required to make several clotting factors, warfarin both takes a long time to ramp up and tone down our clotting system. Its peak effect is 5 days, and its half-life is close to 2 days. So, as you can imagine, it takes a long time to clear compared to the other agents. With warfarin, you'll need to hold it for longer, often 5 days before surgery, restart it sooner, and may need to bridge it if the patient is at high risk of clotting, since it takes days to build back to full effect. Reversal agents include vitamin K and prothrombin complex concentrate if you need a rapid reversal. Next, it's important to understand the risk of bleeding during the procedure, as well as the risk of clotting for the patient if they're off anticoagulation. High-risk surgeries are defined as a greater than 2% risk of bleeding in the next 30 days. These include cardiac surgeries, vascular surgery, neurosurgery, ortho or urologic procedures, and anything where the patient will be on the table for prolonged periods of time, such as major cancer surgeries or reconstructive plastic surgery. For all of these high-risk procedures, it's recommended to stop anticoagulation. Low to moderate-risk surgeries are those with a less than 2% risk, but greater than a minimal risk of bleeding. These include intra-abdominal and intrathoracic surgeries, as well as cardiac catheterizations. For these, it's also recommended to stop anticoagulation. Minimal risk surgery includes cataract surgery, arthrocentesis, dermatologic and dental procedures, pacemaker surgeries, and endoscopy and colonoscopy. Although note that colonoscopies are high risk if polyps are going to be removed, so you may need to stop anticoagulation for those. 
For all other minimal risk surgeries, it's recommended to continue anticoagulation. Note that there are separate guidelines for cardiac valve surgeries, which we will not discuss in detail here. Finally, we need to determine the patient's risk for clotting while off anticoagulation. For patients with AFib, use the CHADS-VASC score to calculate their stroke risk. If the patient's annual stroke risk is greater than 10%, consider bridging their therapy. For patients on anticoagulation for venous thromboembolism, there is a spectrum for risk depending on the recency of their clot, as well as the risk factors. They are considered high risk if they had a clot in the last three months, or if they have antiphospholipid syndrome or other thrombophilic abnormalities. For these patients, they are high risk and consider bridging therapy. Thank you, Julie, for providing that excellent overview of pharmacology. My name is Maddie, and next I'll be discussing the clinical evaluation of periprocedural anticoagulation. Broadly speaking, the goal of this evaluation is to consider the risks and benefits of clotting and bleeding during the periprocedural period and educate your patient on these risks so that you can together engage in shared decision-making and coordinate their periprocedural anticoagulation. Oftentimes, recommendations for this are given based on limited data, so it is your job to make an individualized decision for your patient. Using the estimated risk for bleeding and thrombosis outlined earlier, you should first decide whether stopping their anticoagulation temporarily is warranted, and if so, when and how to do this. The decision on whether to use bridging therapy is largely dictated by whether the patient is taking a vitamin K antagonist or a DOAC. If you decide to stop their anticoagulation, you must clearly communicate a plan to the patient for when to resume it post-procedure. If you decide to continue the patient's anticoagulation, it's best practice to inform the proceduralist and ensure that they are comfortable with your plan. You should also give the patient and their caregiver a calendar with information on dosing, lab testing, and bridging, if applicable. Without these clear instructions, patients can receive conflicting recommendations across providers, inappropriate reversal of their anticoagulation, or changes in the timing of their surgery. Next, I'll talk about the important elements of a clinical history together. The first essential element is to assess the bleeding risk of the planned procedure. You should review the risk of the specific procedure the patient is undergoing, as well as patient-specific risk factors like use of NSAIDs, hepatic dysfunction, renal dysfunction, thrombocytopenia, and prior bleeding episodes. The next thing to consider is the risk of clotting. For this, you should consider the patient's underlying diagnosis, the timing of prior thromboses, the type of anticoagulant, any prior bridging, and any previous periprocedural thrombotic complications. Finally, the last thing I'll talk about is the role of lab testing in this context. For patients on a vitamin K antagonist, Providers should be checking INR levels about 7 to 10 days before the procedure to attain a baseline level. For high bleeding risk procedures, the INR should be checked the day before or the day of surgery to confirm normalization. 
If the INR is checked and is still elevated, you can give a small dose of vitamin K, such as 1.25 to 2.5 milligrams, to further reduce the INR. Typically, checking DOAC levels prior to surgery is not recommended or indicated unless your patient has significant renal or hepatic dysfunction, which may warrant further assessment. Do not rely on INR to reflect DOAC levels or effect. For urgent procedures where DOAC exposure must be assessed, the thrombin time can be checked to assess for dabigatran exposure and agent-specific anti-factor 10A assays can be attained to rule out factor 10A inhibition. So, the bottom line here is that the clinical evaluation of periprocedural anticoagulation should include first an assessment of procedural and patient-specific bleeding risk as well as thrombosis risk and should include a clear plan for what to do with the patient's anticoagulation surrounding their surgery. Hello, I'm Julia Gray, and I'll be transitioning the conversation towards periprocedural management of anticoagulation. I think the first major topic to discuss here is bridging. As many of you know, bridging is when one uses a shorter-acting parenteral anticoagulant such as Lovenox or heparin during a period of subtherapeutic oral anticoagulation with warfarin. Bridging might be indicated for a patient who is going to hold their warfarin in the periprocedural time period. Bridging can happen before and after the procedure while the patient's INR is subtherapeutic. Once the INR comes back into therapeutic range, the heparin or Lovenox is then stopped and bridging is complete. Luckily, DOACs do not require bridging, so the rest of our discussion on bridging is relevant only for patients on warfarin. It turns out not everyone who holds warfarin in the periprocedural time frame needs bridging. Bridging anticoagulation is now recommended only in a small subset of patients at the highest risk for periprocedural thrombosis. This is because some studies have shown increased bleeding risk with bridging without the benefit of lowering clotting risk. Whether or not someone requires bridging depends on their individual risk for a periprocedural arterial or venous thrombus, as well as the reason for being on warfarin in the first place. There is a nice table that lays out the discussion points I'm about to go over. It's Table 4 from the Annals of Internal Medicine Review on Periprocedural Anticoagulation. I'd recommend saving it to a quickly accessible Google document or folder so you can reference it when seeing patients in clinic and discussing periprocedural anticoagulation with them. First off, you need to assess the patient's risk for a periprocedural arterial or venous thrombus in the setting of holding their warfarin. This is the first column of Table 4. There are low, moderate, and high-risk categories. Those with low risk for a periprocedural embolus do not require bridging. Those in the high-risk category do. Those in the moderate-risk category are in a gray zone where shared decision-making with the patient, the primary care provider, the surgeon, and the anesthesiologist should take place to decide whether or not to bridge. So, how do we decide which category a patient is in? Well, it depends on their reason for being on warfarin. For those who are on warfarin for a mechanical valve, the position of the valve, the type of valve, and the time since placement of the valve matter when thinking about thrombotic risk. For example, a mechanical valve in the aortic position is less likely to cause an arterial thrombus and does not always require bridging. However, a mitral mechanical valve is high risk for arterial thrombus and does require bridging. Now, for those who are on warfarin for AFib, their CHADS VAS score is important for deciding which risk category they are in and thus if bridging is indicated. Unsurprisingly, those with a higher CHADS VAS score have a higher risk for a periprocedural thrombus and thus should be bridged. Finally, for those who are on warfarin for VTE disease, the timing of the VTE and the continued presence of prothrombotic risk factors such as active cancer, factor V Leiden, or antiphospholipid syndrome help us decide which risk category the patient is in for bridging. 
For all the details regarding which risk category your patient is in for periprocedural arterial or venous thrombus and thus who to bridge, please reference Table 4. Now, when bridging is indicated, we usually recommend Lovenox because it can be done in the outpatient setting. Lovenox is usually dosed at 1 mg per kilogram twice daily. Remember, Lovenox is renally cleared and dose adjustments are required for impaired kidney function. Please reference Table 5 from our article about how to adjust Lovenox for impaired renal function and when to start and stop it before and after a procedure. When Lovenox cannot be used, such as the case with ESRD, we can consider subcutaneous heparin. However, this does carry a threefold increased risk for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or HIT. Table 6 is a nice summary of the periprocedural management of warfarin. Prior to the procedure, one must decide whether or not warfarin needs to be held. If it does need to be held, the clinician should check an INR 7 to 10 days prior to surgery. If that INR is in the therapeutic range of 2 to 3, generally the patient should hold warfarin for 5 days to result in a normal INR. For high-risk procedures, INR measurement should be repeated the day before surgery, and if the INR is greater than 1.5, then low-dose vitamin K can be given orally or subcutaneously. Prior to the procedure, the clinician also needs to come up with a bridging plan, as discussed previously. After the procedure, the timing of warfarin resumption depends on bleeding risk. For procedures with high bleeding risk, guidelines suggest resuming warfarin at 24 to 36 hours after the procedure. This is generally safe as it takes several days for the warfarin to become therapeutic again. For low to moderate bleeding risk procedures, warfarin can be restarted 12 hours after the procedure. For minimal bleeding risk surgeries, warfarin therapy is generally not interrupted. Finally, post-procedure bridging, if warranted, should continue until the INR is 2. We'll now transition to discussing the management of DOACs in the periprocedural period. Luckily, DOACs do not require bridging, so that takes that decision point off the table. There was a study called the PAUSE, or Perioperative Anticoagulant Use for Surgery Evaluation, that aimed to standardize a perioperative management plan for DOACs when the indication for anticoagulation was AFib. The timing of DOAC interruption and resumption was based on estimated bleeding risk for the procedure, DOAC type, and renal function. For minimal risk procedures, there is no need to hold DOACs. For low to moderate bleeding risk procedures, the recommendations are to stop apixaban and rivaroxaban one day prior to the procedure and restart it no sooner than one day after the procedure. For high bleeding risk procedures, the recommendations are to stop apixaban and rivaroxaban two days prior to the procedure and restart no sooner than two to three days after the procedure. Table 7 summarizes this well and also includes recommendations for divigatran. A similar approach for DOAC management may be extrapolated to patients with VTE as the indication for anticoagulation. A note of caution, patients with neurosurgical or neuroaxial procedures were not included in the PAUSE trial, and they do carry risk for devastating bleeding complications. Take care and discuss with a surgeon and pharmacist about the recommendations for DOAC management in the periprocedural setting when the brain or spinal cord are going to be involved. Now we'll move on to a consultation and follow-up discussion with Dr. Smith. Hi, my name is Jared Smith, and in this section, we'll briefly be discussing the role of expert consultation and follow-up. Um, so first, it's important to note that every patient who is getting anticoagulation and is about to undergo a procedure needs to have careful planning done um, with a team that includes a lot of different uh, disciplines. This is not just the provider of the anticoagulation, not just the proceduralist, but also involves pharmacists. I think it's important to also uh, involve anesthesia when there are questions 
questions about patients who might need specific blood testing like INRs around the time of their procedure um, or for patients who are undergoing nerve blocks or other types of neuraxial anesthesia and finally for patients who have significant cardiopulmonary disease as a result of the condition from which they're anticoagulated um, and so what we've talked about in this podcast is a pretty uh, broadly applicable standardized approach that can be used in a lot of different clinical scenarios but it is important to be aware of some situations in which you might want to be seeking consultation from either a hematologist or uh, another thrombosis expert. And really, these are for patients who fall at the extremes of either thrombotic risk or bleeding risk. So patients who you might think of at the extremes of a thrombotic or clotting risk would be patients with uh, something like antiphospholipid syndrome or patients who have had a recent stroke. And then at the other side of the spectrum, patients who are at high risk of bleeding might be patients that are undergoing neurosurgical procedures, patients who have had recent bleeding events, or things like that. Um, There are other scenarios, uh, like patients who have a history of labile INRs on warfarin, during which you might want to make sure you're coordinating really closely with an anticoagulation or warfarin clinic. And then finally, patients with advanced renal failure who are on DOAX or are requiring heparin bridging, important to think about coordinating with their nephrologist as well. And then finally, to address a bit about follow-up after the procedure has been completed. So this is a time frame during which close communication amongst all the various providers is, is very important. And one challenge in this setting is to ensure that there's good communication between both inpatient procedural providers and outpatient providers. So it's important that everyone has an understanding of how the procedure went, were there any complications, and what were the final medication instructions that the patient had after the procedure. So if they are getting bridged back to a vitamin K antagonist, making sure that they have specific instructions for timing of that, uh, or if they're resuming other types of anticoagulation, making sure that they have as specific of instructions as possible. And then finally, um, this is an important opportunity to ensure that the patient is actually receiving appropriate prescribing of their anticoagulation and reconcile that with other medications on their list. So asking important questions like, should they really be on an aspirin in addition to their anticoagulation? Uh, if they have renal dysfunction, is their DOAC appropriately dosed? And it's even a good time to consider whether or not the patient still has a good indication for anticoagulation or whether their bleeding risk has perhaps become more important than their clotting risk. So for example, in patients who were started on a blood thinning medication much earlier in life and are now a bit older and have an increased bleeding risk, asking yourself the question, does this medication really need to be resumed, can also be a really helpful thing to do in this time period. And that's all I got. So thanks for listening. Well, I've learned a lot. This is complicated stuff. Good thing our colleagues consulted medicine. So let's see if we can apply what we learned to our patient. A 60-year-old female with a history of atrial fibrillation, hypertension, diabetes, and a bicuspid mechanical aortic valve on warfarin who presented one week prior to a knee replacement. You can follow along with our infographic as we go back through our case. First, we're going to risk stratify the bleeding risk of our procedure. This patient is undergoing a major orthopedic procedure, so it will be a high risk for bleeding, which means we are going to need to hold anticoagulation. 
Then we can ask ourselves if our patient has any indication for bridging. We learned that we can risk stratify patients with atrial fibrillation based on their TRADSVAS score. Our patient has a TRADSVAS of 2, which is not an indication for bridging. We also learned that we can risk stratify patients with heart valves based on their type and location. This patient's aortic valve conveys a low risk of stroke, which is also not an indication for bridging. We obtain labs and find that the patient's INR is 2.5. We decide to hold warfarin for five days prior to the procedure without bridging therapy. We send our recommendation to the orthopedist to check an INR the day of the surgery, and we instruct the patient to resume warfarin 24 to 36 hours after the procedure. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you learned something about periprocedural anticoagulation management, and join us next time for another episode of Primary Care Anywhere.